Love and Money is a little-known play from 2006, an early work by the London-Irish television writer who would go on to create the controversial British television series Pulling and Utopia. The play debuted at the Manchester Royal Exchange before moving to the Young Vic. It was recently staged in Dublin by the Touche Players in a production directed by James O'Connor. The play has been called variously one of the best new plays of the year and beyond doubt the most self-indulgent drivel I've ever reviewed. Thematically, Love and Money is a contemporary piece concerning itself with the impact of debt and the crushing phenomenology of the bureaucracy on families and marriages. Tonally, it's a pitch-black comedy with aspirations to social criticism. Our protagonists, David and Jess, live their lives backwards, moving from horrific conclusion to existential conundrum by way of addictive shopping and sexual harassment. (laughs) Yeah. How's that? The two tend to play together very nicely, don't they? (laughs) Sexual harassment. Yeah, so, uh, hello, Gareth. Hello, we're James. Back. We are back. Oh, oh wind. We're, uh, you might have noticed we're, we're outside. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't a common uh, way of doing radio, but we figured it's one of the four sunny days a year in Ireland, so why not try? Yeah, yeah, we were lucky enough to have it land on the day that was um, very, very sunny. And we're covered by what I think are sunflowers. Are they sunflowers? No, they're not. They're Those are daisies. daisies. Yeah, they're shit daisies. <laughs> I wish I could call them sunflowers. This this is Reading Plays, a programme where we discuss a play in great detail. We do what, what, we, what we term... Um, narcissistically a, a close reading mm-hmm. uh, of a play and we've picked a, a pretty random and obscure one this time for our, our return episode why have we been gone so long James? Why are you asking me? <laughs> uh, why have you been gone so long as you kind of remove your sweatshirt expose your oh, underbelly my oh. belly very distracted by that very creamy uh, I think we were gone <laughs> just, I, just I what everyone think. likes in a belly a creamy a creamy sheen. belly a creamy crop uh, we were gone because of a mixture of of different things that were happening. I think you, your workload stepped up. You had to do a number of things and couldn't really afford to do the research and time on this show anymore. My own workload did step up before declining completely when I uh, left my job. So kind of different things are happening which required different amounts of effort in different areas. Our lives have changed drastically. They have changed drastically. And yet we're still in the same place <laughs> doing the same show. So you think they haven't changed at all. How Beckettian. Yeah, and much like plays, you write it as if it is changing even when it's not. So <laughs> here's where we are. Notes blowing away in the wind. I should also point out I'm a little bit nervous. I'm teetering on nervousness because I have a fear of bees. <laughs> A very strong, <laughs> now, unnatural now fear you of bees. choose to mention this. <laughs> I thought it'd be funnier for the listener to know <laughs> that I have a, a ridiculous phobia. It's, and it's, to the, it's the irrationality pushed to the point of when I was 15 years old. My parents were fearful of me running out into the road where I live in a very narrow path, where if a bee was on the path, I'd run out in front of cars. When you were fear. 15? When I was 15. I don't even have the excuse of saying I was younger. I was that old and you, still frightened. You did of have that preternatural extended early childhood that we <laughs> don't talk about. It's never ended. Yeah, you know, latency. <laughs> so this play, uh, you mentioned James O'Connor. Yeah, so James O'Connor is a friend of ours who uh, is a, a, a bright young director, a rising talent. And he, uh, he took this play to, to the stage in uh, the Teachers Club. And it was really interesting uh, to see a good play in the Teachers Club because it's probably the first time there's ever been one there. Um, <laughs> wow, yeah. <laughs> they frequently kind of backhanded. They frequently, um, they frequently stage amateur productions and I've seen some, some really dire theatre there. But it, it was quite a good production. Um, but it was a play that interested me, uh, partly because we had access to the script and that's always nice, mm-hmm. but also because... Um, I'm sure you'll have noticed, James, there's almost no stage directions. Yes. Yeah, there's very little details. And there's no real... uh, There's no no set direction. um, There's no real staging of the characters in any particular clothing or positions or with objects. It's kind of either connoted or mentioned in the text itself. In other words, in the the dialogue or not at all. And I also noticed that um, it's kind of... It's not really about place too much. You know, place is never really... There's no place or position they need to be in for the points that they're making about the lives they're having to be you know 
reified or brought up in any way. So yeah, it was very interesting, and it kind of went straight into dialogue and ends with great dialogue, and it's kind of just that. A huge, huge challenge for any sonographer and director, though, because a lot of what's going on here is either monologue or dialogue, but but essentially monologue. Two characters failing to connect with with literally no stage directions in, in many scenes. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it must be inter- you haven't seen the play. No, and I think that's probably affecting why the comedic aspect was lost on me. Well, that's going to be an interesting contrast because, yeah, uh, I can't imagine, reading the script, I can't imagine how how you would begin to translate it if you hadn't seen it already into mm-hmm. something visual. Mm-hmm. Because it is literally, many of the scenes are literally just dialogue. For example, the opening scene is an email exchange, which is totally decontextualized. So there are literally any number of ways that that could be staged. Yeah. So how did you when when you imagine when you were reading the play how did you how did you see it As soon as I saw the 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 tip the not the moniker but the the typical taxonomy of beat you know in in a screenplay or in any play or any type of writing around staging you have beat which is where you know the audience where the dialogue momentarily stops and allows kind of a breath much like a punctuation but a very strong one and as soon as I saw beat as he was laughing to himself and typing I imagined it as as him sitting with a kind of laptop somewhere in some room uh, in fact, because I knew it was a play, I imagined it to be a shit stage, a very cheap Tesco table, like this very white with a little laptop, a Mac that he brought from home sitting on top of it. And he's t- typing and laughing and we're hearing him speak as he's typing. So I actually con- I configured it that he was typing and also hearing his voice of what he was typing, maybe a voiceover played in, re- in some sort of recording or, or otherwise. And then for the girl, I actually imagined her voice coming through without seeing her. I imagine is that is that how it was shown in the that's theater? That's actually exactly how it was staged. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay, that's that's really impressive, James. I think I think you've got a career ahead of you in, uh, in theater. In directing. cheap theater, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it should have been more visual than that. But I'm already imagining the staging. That's how much this critical life gets to you. Yeah, no, that's you. You got it on the nose. It was a guy sitting at a desk. He was reading out his part, and then you would hear her part in voiceover, and also it was projected um, behind him. Um, so so this is this is a play which I I, I think. I was attracted to reading it again because it's very brave in tackling huge social issues and mm. concretizing them into relationships, which is something I know that you're interested in doing in your work. And yeah. I almost shy away from because it's such a uh, thankless task to do that. It's scary. Um, and even trying to approach the idea I did some time ago, I tried to even just draft up a, a script with a lot of characters based around some social microcosm, in this case, a, a space much like The Exchange. Oh yeah, look, we have a droopy one. <laughs> Much like these wilting plants. Oh, I mean, my microphone. Droopy microphone. Droopy microphone, like the plant. Yeah, it's, it's a very difficult thing to engage with because you have to imagine as many of those characters being localized and real and saying things that would come naturally while also clearly putting in political totems that you're trying to say without it seeming arch or obvious that you're just dropping in your points. And that's really difficult to reconcile. Incredibly difficult. I think that's something that only the best writers get down because they've lived through real-life situations involving those politics with enough natural dialogue to follow suit. Well, there's a, there's a contradiction there, isn't there? Because uh, what you want to do in drama is to make something uh, singular and universal. Mm. And it has, to be, um, it has to be a story true to the characters. But if they are representative, if they're totemic, if they're... They're, you know, they're in this case about the financial crisis and debt and all this kind of stuff. Then how do you do that without them becoming just, you know, rancid cliches? Yeah. And I think that this play, for all its failures, largely succeeds in that aspect, creating characters that are not merely um, symbols for for what we've all gone through in the financial recession. They they live and breathe their own pain, symbolic though it might be. I think what's beautiful about it and why it works that these characters are very believable people suffering different, uh, you know, different weird kleptomanias and obsessions and seeing how their their psychological problems are carried forth why it works is is that I think the writer took actual victims 
that are undeniably related to the current economic system. Like he t- you take people who whose psychological conditions are known to be tied in to either austerity or fear of financial problems. And that way, when you write them, we all know these archetypes. We know these kinds of people who suffer under these somewhat, um, let's call them capitalist realist problems. So, yeah, I mean, that it's one thing just to write a number of characters who are staged to make a point and therefore they're nothing more than speaker boxes and it's awful. But it's another to actually write people and think, well, no, these, this is actually a psychological condition that exists today and here's a number of people who have come out and said it in the profession. Like, it's related to how the economy works and it's related to how capitalism works. So I think he wrote it from the victim's perspective. I think all these people are hard victims and some of them don't quite know what of and some of them are far too aware of what of. So, yeah. I think, I think that's a really good insight. It's a, you, you can call it capital, capitalist realism or um, you can call it as as David Grieber does the bureaucracy in the widest sense one of the great things the play does is it's not talking about the recession has done this Mm. what it's saying is that no the nature of how our economic system works and exploits us forces us into these compromises and the recession has just worsened it Mm. Um, and that's a far stronger more interesting way of talking about things because it's much more universal and you can tie it back into Dostoevsky and other people who've written about poverty and the the compromises it forces people to make and at times the play is very broad Mm. there are aspects to it that are cartoonish but you know McDonough does that Andrew Walsh does that um, I think there's something about a playwright that can write with, with fierce energy that, that encourages them to become cartoonish at times and play with the, with the tension around the humour around that and the intensity around that and the shock and the silliness of it. And that's okay, you know, it, it does stray at times into silliness, but um, it also at other times is, is very profoundly moving. It is, yeah. And, but you're right, I mean, the, the, the issue with cartoonish, the cartoonish actions where you make someone suddenly say very stupidly obvious things where, like, I'm in a position of power, so now I'm going to talk over you and tell you what you're going to be for me. And it's obvious to everybody that this person's manipulator um, it takes away the plurality of the text it makes it less plural and therefore it's no longer just something that's universally relating back to things like as you said Dostoevsky which came to mind for me in this as well but it it, it, it kind of captured I'd say it's more about the audience it's those things happen because oh yay helicopter oh wait yay hey wave wave <laughs> he's very low down just amp that up in the edit and make this, it seem like he's right here this is like uh, one of those Hollywood tours where they're coming by our, below us you can see where the podcast reading place is uh, recorded in this garden oh look there they are <laughs> there's a couple of losers in a garden oh, trying to make a show uh, I do live in a quite a bad area so it's probably a, a cop uh, helicopter observing yeah. a running crim it's a moment from the wire <laughs> <laughs> a corner boy is hopping a wall somewhere yeah, what I was saying is that I think the reason that the greatest playwrights around right now have to delve into these moments of almost slapstick and loud, boorish kind of writing and, and as you said, hyper-energy uh, scenes where characters kind of just suddenly become an archetype is because of the audience. I think sometimes it's to get the audience laughing, it's to keep them engaged, it's about getting their reaction. And it's a step away from your text and a step more towards the staging and to mm-hmm. the people you're talking to. So that's probably why you discovered that. I'm not quite sure, though. I didn't see... I've never seen this, mm. as, you said, as we know, visually. So I've never... I have no idea what James O'Connor's uh, play was like. Well, apparently you have an exact idea because yeah. you, you sussed the staging. But I, I think that kind of writing is also a step away from the kind of tired realism of social... Uh, social playwriting in the 70s, 80s and, 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 and I guess even the early 90s it plays that uh, and TV shows that, that tried very earnestly to portray you know, the, the conundrums of working class life the difficulties of people's sexual issues and so mm-hmm. on and, and in doing so were so painful and earnest that they were unwatchable or tiresome That is true, yeah so that's what I mean though about paying a token to the audience it's not an Abigail's party sometimes someone has to break out dancing or do something funny <laughs> so into the play itself do we want to read through it? I mean not the whole um, thing but Well I've got, a, I've got a well we can start off yeah um, 
um, one thing that I want to say though before we do that is that um, there were a few things in this play that again that I really liked that I don't I haven't seen done well in many other plays and that's quite specifically there's a few kinds of human behaviour that are universal we all observe them that I mean look I haven't read a, a huge body of plays but I haven't in the plays I've seen I haven't seen these things dealt with and specifically those things were um, the, the sort of destructive drive towards really self-destructive honesty so we see it twice in the play where someone reveals something that it, it, there's no healthy way that they could possibly get away with revealing this and yet they're forced to do it anyway yeah. by their just uh, the, just the the capacity the necessity to connect with another human being forces them to reveal something they shouldn't yeah um, then there's this thing between um, the line between friendly informality and hierarchical t- control in the workplace and it's done again in a cartoonish way but that's not something you see often and yet it's something in every workplace other than the office I can't think of anything that's dealt with it in a realistic way that that horrible manipulative exploitative way in which bosses oh my keys have fallen out of my pocket this is a shambles <laughs> the way bosses are, are turned are falling off now oh, oh naked oh it's a dream okay, stick with we're it. in a dream it's fine <laughs> you know you'll have a boss that's uh, your best friend one minute and then going oh that was an inappropriate thing to say in the office. What kind of, you know, that, that using that as a bullying tactic and there's a great scene of that. And the schizophrenia around it. And yeah, but just the, the fact that you don't get to decide that and your boss gets to play with the line where yeah. humanity and formality lie. Mm-hmm. And finally, there's uh, this thing, which I know you'll have a lot to say on, which is the, uh, the catheting of love into symbolic uh, forms. Mm-hmm. So we have things like Audis and uh, Graves and so on, taking on uh, the role of these unspoken uh, feelings, um, uh, being used to store feelings. And, and it's something that, it's very hard to write about that, so it's very impressive that there's there's so that, that it's done so astutely yeah and and it's something that we, that we i had a confrontation earlier <laughs> should be quite probably shouldn't be so loud Shh, okay, keep it down. basically the people who live in the, in the next house over oh. Prince, they uh <laughs> they have a they have I, I mowed one of their flowers by mistake oh. and there was a big argument about it but clearly it wasn't just a flower is <laughs> <laughs> what i'm trying to say <laughs> you see it's never about the flower never just like it's never about the plates it's never about the hoovering. It's always the penis. <laughs> it's always a penis. As Freud once said, it's always the penis. It's always the penis. But sometimes it's a cigar. Yeah. Which is also a penis. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So so what, what have we got? Scene one. What was your impression? Uh, oh, right. So I really... Let's go sports coverage. Oh, Jesus. It's quick. Um, <laughs> it was, you know, it was, action was quick. You know, he kept the ball moving in the dialogue. Uh, I liked that the the setup of, of what was going to be the system of dialogue for most of this play was given immediately to the audience, which is it's one person uh, attempting to communicate with another person and actually say something honest or deliver, as you said, or a cathect, you know, invest in emotion. Uh, but he's not unsure and he's got a lot of history to believe he, he, it's not going to work out. But that's a setup that a lot of people recognize in nervous rom- rom-coms. Then you have a girl who hilariously is French and doesn't speak English in, 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 to any degree other than French. Yeah, Sandrine, who speaks oh. English in a fractured manner Hello. where she uses twat and cunt and repeats his words back to him badly and prepositions are all over the shop. Uh, and so it's kind of, it's comedic and you think it's going to be a bit silly. But what's beautiful is there's a push and pull dynamic here. She is telling him more and more as he pushes. She's pulling him in saying, no, tell me, tell me, tell me. What is the truth of your life? Tell me something. And I've dealt with this quite surprisingly in real life where... Um, not necessarily even to females to males from both ways where there's a case where one person will say look you, you don't actually want to know and the person's like oh no just, just I want to know this very particular thing and then if that person attempts to talk about other aspects of their life that are important like I do telecommunications yes it's boring but here's what the dynamics of my job the person will go I don't give a shit about that tell me about your deepest tragedies tell me your darker self and she got exactly what she asked for yeah listener if, if anyone ever says that 
don't. Don't. <laughs> they you can't idiot. handle it. Yeah, they can't. They really can't. <laughs> Which this play demonstrates twice. <laughs> the moment you reveal your true self, it will be rejected. The great tragedy of life. And, and if it's <laughs> not, the person who doesn't reject it is probably a mentalist Crazy. who's even worse than <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah. It's the worst. It's narcissistic illusion. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. It follows you. You'll, you'll end up uh, murdering someone on a train with them and then jumping off into the icy waters below as it passes over a bridge. Wow, okay, that's a good reference. At, at midnight. Yeah, it's fantastic, Stranger Than a Train kind of thing. <laughs> um, yeah, so I really liked though that the opening was kind of, I, I could pick up on the comedy, but the leering underlying danger is there too. Mm. You, 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 the character David is moving towards an expression of something and he's saying he's not ready to talk about his wife and Sandrine is saying I don't care about your job you know I don't give a shit about that you British twat I'm interested in you <laughs> and then she starts momentarily expositing a, a history the two of them have had when he was in France well, well, I think she was in England she was in England well one or the other either way it's, it's, there's a history they had together uh, and it's a moment of she understands what he would laugh at therefore we know they've shared real emotions or at least shared an essence of something that they've taken very seriously to email one another and I also thought it was funny that the, the, the way in which the these dialogues read out is you hear the dates of their emails mm. initially there's a massive gap and then the gap closes and closes and closes uh, until and quite beautifully the two dates are almost right beside one another because on the same day they're emailing each other so the dynamic becomes more powerful and then when he finally reveals himself the days completely dislocate and, and nucleate in other words that that she doesn't reply at all and infinitely goes on with no reply and he keeps asking for more information which is beautiful i liked that playing mm. off the idea of the as the dates get closer they're getting closer as people but of course, it's just an illusion because the man is getting to the point where he's now on gi- giving this woman what she wants, which is she wants to hear something real and true about his wife. And he gives some of it, which makes sense, which is a little bit human that, you know, maybe he watched her die. But then it's the degree to which he assisted the suicide of his wife. So just for context, uh, what, what, what he's revealing is that his wife has died. Mm-hmm. And initially, he's, oh, tell me if you're a dead wife. Oh, I can't. And you think that, you know, he's this cloistered person that can't reveal his emotions. But no, it turns out he just straight up murdered his wife. <laughs> yeah. and, and then he's like, uh, yes, yeah, so uh, about that uh, romance that we've got going on. And uh, yeah, doesn't and it, work out for him. And like all great plays, you set up the, the dialogue that will ultimately be you know, disclosed again at the end. Not that you should always retransmute your meaning again at the end, but it beautifully comes. Mm. It's setting up what will be the ending too because you have the line, which is, you know, as soon as I saw my wife dead, I thought, well, you know, I don't have to worry about that debt anymore. There's also, about yeah. there's also the symbol of the Audi, which is, comes up yeah. later in the play, always, where he's, he seems like a monster. And, and indeed, of course, of course, he is a monster. But he's... Um, he was test driving an Audi, thinking, "Oh, I could really drive this." And oh, the guy, the guy was making me feel like I couldn't pay for it, and I could afford it. Yeah. And then, oh, what about our debts? Oh, there she is, dead. Dead. Oh, don't have to worry about that anymore. How about that Audi? <laughs> the Audi's more likely now. But a brilliant, brilliant, because because clearly, I mean, there's no human relationship to an Audi, but it is. A, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of financial freedom, of success, mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. one that's that's specifically uh, mentioned in in a later scene by by an employer of David's. Um, I, I now what I hear you talking about it. I realize that there's a lot here about electronic communication and the illusion of intimacy yeah the intimacy they shared in person was real but this this disclosure uh, they're kind of forced into a revelation in order to keep the intensity of their connection in this in this cold medium of email mm. and and they don't have the, the perhaps if he'd revealed it during one of their lovemaking sessions she could have colluded with him in this murderous uh, way but but uh, certainly isn't going to join him of Rima. Well, the um, issues with mediating communication on any real level or throughout the entire play, at different points you have people, or in fact non-characters, representing one character, speaking seemingly to nothing. You have other points where um, the wife, who finally comes more and more real towards the end of the play, is talking, again, seemingly to no one or a therapist or to some sort of figure that wants to hear information, possibly even the audience. You have a lot of people at different points who, when they finally do talk to another human, 
it's very strange and cloying and broken mm-hmm. and often at a state of being one being inebriated or one being in a position of powerlessness. And then when they're talking about their real sentiments, they're often talking to nobody. It's mm-hmm. to this to nothing. So you, you, it's putting into question a lot in the stage, not staging so much as the writing of the play, who is talking to who and why and you know, do they even need a reason? Why are they narrating? Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> We're back. We had to move. We need the sun. I'm, I'm soaking up the rays here. Oh, actually, I'm in shadow again, but sorry. Yeah. <laughs> You're always in shadow again. <laughs> Took it with me. Jesus. The shadow knows all. The shadow sees all. <laughs> Racist. All right. <laughs> what? Right. Back into things. We were covering the first scene. It was just called One, isn't it? Yeah. So, the, again, this is one of those plays where the scenes don't really have locations and the characters don't really have bi- biographies. Mm-hmm. There's no acts. No. No, there's just one, two, three. Four, yeah, ask your question. <laughs> um, so scene two. Yes, scene two. Let me turn the page in my mind to scene two. You've got an adorable 19th century style notebook there with, filled with your scribblings. That's mm-hmm, because I'm an aristocrat, although they wouldn't have a notebook at all. Um, right, so if I recall, scene two is... Yeah, okay, so that's where the father and mother... Uh, entity comes into it where you just have two characters in his father and mother at least in the dialogue and they're talking to one another and they're doing a kind of a, kind of a somewhat typical late middle aged old couple conversation about the gravestone uh, that they that they kind of dislike and hate and they're talking about this Greek man who's put up an incredibly luxurious and um, you could call uh, not Otis what a very Oh, there's another word, ornate display for his Greek wife. And the it's like it's got a Madonna statue on it. It's got a, it's an exact replica statue of his own wife. And they're just complaining about the wealth and ridiculous cost. And they're bitching about how much they paid for another grave, which turns out to be their daughter's grave. And their daughter being the dead wife, dead of, wife David of David in yeah. the previous scene. And this is slowly kind of unraveled as it, it again turns from comedy to horror, uh, almost on a, a knife edge. And there's this, um, the mother-father kind of vacillate between one another. And this is a, another type of dialogue I was mentioning earlier. There's kind of two types. And this is the one where two characters tend to finish each other's sentences, particularly when they're a couple or they're a mother-father or a woman-man dynamic. And it's very strange because it's not even that they always complete what the other one's going to say. Sometimes they deviate slightly, but they ultimately return to the same conclusion until someone at the end of the scene will deviate completely. So the father and mother, in this case, are the same entity almost. They, are, they vacillate very quickly between each other's uh, points. Like, oh, he says this, and she said, well, he paid that much. He did pay that much. And going into the, I pay 2,500 plus VAT. Don't mention the VAT for the, the daughter's gravestone. And they're building a justification as to why they eventually desecrated this poor Greek man's wife's grave beside their daughter's because they felt it was overshadowing their daughter's. And again, it's, you're back to this idea of a material object, even at the point of death, being something that's ostentatious and reflects something missing in you that makes you angry, and therefore you destroy it, and you think it's about your daughter and giving her back her more simple, cheap <laughs> gravestone, but it's much more about something deeper. And it's, that's just actually the scene that kind of got me more interested than the, the first one. I really liked the opening scene, but I think the second for me got me really, really interested. Yeah, I, I, this is a family that rather than articulating their emotion have always um, shown their love through financial totems and there's a a house mentioned that they lost in the 80s with eight bedrooms and um, the sin that they committed the sin that the father committed 
who was to fail to help his daughter because she needed to stand on her own two feet. So you've got a kind of commentary on class there as well because uh, something that, that's often the difference between working class families and middle class families is middle class families will see it as part of the family duty to uh, invest in the success of their children, whether it be helping them set up a business or paying for college, whereas working class families also feel, often feel like um, you must work to obtain something or you haven't earned it and so on and, and often their children won't do as well as a result. So um, it's later revealed in the play that... Um, that, that, that well it's actually revealed in this scene I suppose that the, the daughter's death is in part due to the, her, their, their failure to help and it's, it's due to the financial stresses that she was going uh, undergoing but what we see in this scene is um, characters unable to articulate their feelings of grief mm. talking in monetary terms and in representative terms we have this this rival uh, edifice this kind of ludicrously described Greek temple is being built to the yeah. dead wife uh, next to their, their modest grave the, all they can afford for their daughter and it enrages them because it's it's showing their hypocrisy that it's demonstrating that the thing that they have put grief into the, the monetary thing the, the grave the representations even there they're failing so mm-hmm. they must defend that in the way that they are kind of undoing what they did emotionally by failing to support her in this horrendous act of vandalism destroying this this man's um, to protect the idea of their daughter which they mm-hmm. feel they're now finally defending but it's deeply sad because as the father describes destroying this sanctuary this poor shrine left by a Greek man to his wife he, he feels a great emptiness at the end of the act and it's initially a, a vengeful loving sense of he's doing the right thing as he's, he, I think he describes it as it felt like the right thing to I did it for her mm-hmm. and then that brings on a saddening remorseful understanding that it wasn't for her it's too late but, this but is a, before that we get his huge enjoyment of it you know when he smashed in yeah. the Virgin Mary's statue skull yeah. he, uh, he felt like his girl was being brought back and then they they're it's queasily described that they made love that night father and mother don't mention that (laughs) but we did (laughs) so we get this direct connection between money power and virility through this act of destruction this Mm. sublimation of grief into this uh, horrendous assault and I think it's a really powerful connection to um, to how people um, demonize and other um, groups of people in order that they can make themselves feel powerful powerless yeah. people feeling powerful through these symbolic actions yeah deliberately in some way either verbally or in some societal sense stepping on the back of another just to feel slightly higher or slightly better and in this case in this case it's the racism that's it kind of becomes more overt as the text goes along for uh, this Greek guy and they kind of keep saying just you know fucking Greek basically like a fucking Greek guy a a Greek and they kind of just say the word they just say the national identity Greek loudly as if to as if that in itself is an explanation for like Greek and a shrine and our daughter and and they kind of it's it's something nice about the uh, dialogue too as they focus more and more on the objects and they clear points the clear signifiers that are the most important and that are revolving in their mind, probably what revolves around the motivations become clearer and clearer as they get a little bit more angry, a little bit more, less pro erit and more emotional. And then by the end of the, the scene, the mother and father have actually, they deviated and then they've returned to the same point a little bit, except that the father then begins to linger on that emotion of emptiness. He says, you know, this is, you know, I, I loved her and she's dead. And he's just saying this out loud. And it's a very strange thing for him to be saying because the mother immediately tries to reel him in where she tells him, you know, reminds him that it was, it was for the, he did it for the right reasons because it was a, you know, cheap sentiments of this Greek man had to be destroyed. You know, it was, we paid a lot of money. She kind of reminds him of the same motivations that started off the conversation as if to close it down and say, look, remember why we did this. It's a simple point. Don't stray too far. But it's lovely because then it kind of ends with her asking him to recognize another point, another stupid subject she wants to move on to. I can't... Oh, no, at the, the end is, is her saying, well, when he builds it again, yeah, he knows what's going to happen. Gonna happen yeah. And the father's kind of... 
tearfully recounting that he felt like he'd taken a sledgehammer to this man's wife and yeah. how destroyed the man was when he saw what had happened and 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 the the, the wife is weaponizing his guilt uh by 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 mentioning well you you let your daughter down but but we'll take care of this grave when it's built again yeah it's 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 a monster scene and it was it was beautifully portrayed that the two older actors um that played father and mother in, in the scene despite having you know very little background really inhabited these um uncommunicative creatures these alienated emotionally blunted um and uh and and disempowered figures in in a, it was in pro- easily the most powerful scene in the play yeah um, i wondered about that it felt much more poignant to me than a lot of other scenes except for possibly the ending which I took to be quite uh, yeah I mean I was, I'll comment on that later on the, 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 no, um, you mentioned that the humour in the play is something that reading it doesn't come across this is the moment in this scene where the, where the wife kind of breaks character or breaks her, her passive elderly woman uh, facade and says cunt about the, uh, the Greek yeah. um, man. That's, that was hilarious and there are lots of uh, moments like that where, where, where it's more obvious in context when a character um breaks their role and there's a moment of humour because they're showing the kind of horrendous darkness underneath yeah just just hate just sometimes very pure and sometimes just impure displaced from somewhere else virulent hate mm-hmm. uh, and that does come up a lot um, often characters start even hating other they'll start mentioning hate for some other figure and then quickly return it back to themselves just this despised uh, untargeted hate so yeah and all of those are great things about the scene and yet, this scene, straight away scene two, it conveys the major problem of the play, which is that it doesn't carry the plot forward. Mm. It's a vignette. And, and really, every scene in, in this play is a vignette. And uh, we get this classic problem, which is, you know, you have a, a backwards narrative. Um, we know it's going to happen. So why are we going to get there? And I think that's where the play falls down. Why do we want to get there? And rather than explicating with each uh, scene deeper knowledge of the motivations now, that scene is really powerful and interesting and about grief and how people hide their emotions but it there, it really has no connection with the rest of the narrative and it doesn't need to be there from a dramaturgic point of view uh, and a storytelling point of view no, dramaturgically I think it's important because it sets up why Jess is the way she is and Jess is a figure that's mostly this ghostly aside character made reference to her as a number of problems that we only really get to see I suppose at the end of the play She's someone that's consistently referred to and is at the beginning, which is also the end. And I think it's important because these are her parents. And we're getting a, probably a strong idea of where her attitude towards life and then sudden need to individuate into this weird escapist spirituality came from. Even though we know that you know, it's was, it was an empty gesture. And we know that Jess, the character later on, when talking about wanting to be Buddhist or wanting to engage with some essence of real feeling, was just talking about a, a kind of consumerist anachodromia. And she didn't go for it. But we can see why she had these ideas. She's probably felt entrenched and entrapped by this type of dynamic a lot of her life because these are her parents and then again when her husband David takes up the same mantle and what he believes is pursuit of happiness it, it just causes the same closing down of feeling that will eventually you know cripple her so I think it, maybe it is dramaturgically important mm. to set up the parents so it's kind of like the intergenerational transmission of, of a sort of consumer surrender or an inability to, to really feel emotions yeah Okay, I'm, I, I get that. That her husband takes on, essentially, because he has yeah. to sacrifice so much of his own character for what we see as the job, for what we see as eventually him 
giving someone a sexual act. And we, we know this stuff is coming for him too. And we can perhaps imagine that her parents, not going through the same things, but went through similar sacrifices of character. I still think you you need more... And, uh, they're coming for us. Yeah, that's it. That's over. <laughs> but you definitely, you definitely need a little bit more justification than that. Because that's True. all character building and, and motivation building. But there's nothing added to the story by this scene. And I'm not saying that story is the the raison d'etre of theatre but in the absence of story you're really going to have to add something majorly novel which I don't think this play does in order to replace the human need for, for narrative why are we seeing the next thing why not just have this scene on its own you know why do we need to see anything else so mm. I, I don't know it's yeah but that's I, I loved the scene but I didn't love the play and I think that was my issue with, with most wow. of the scenes in the yeah. play I have reasons for not liking. It. I mean, I, I ultimately I think the play is one of the better ones we've read, and I think it's, I do really enjoy it. And it's, it's it struck me. It made me feel a lot of kind of poignant feelings of just existential questions that don't have answers. Like again, do we feel anything? Or no, not do, not do we feel anything? But um, do our needs or individual points in life matter more? The more and more homogenous we become and intertwined with the need to basically have some level of uh, financial, not just success, but stability and mm-hmm. questions of. Um, as you said, do real explications of who you are or an attempt to try and communicate really matter? Will they give you everything you want? Will, it, will vulnerability therefore uh, give you a nice consequence or give you some uh, interaction that is meaningful and loving or will it just leave you more vulnerable? And that, the play affects me in that way. But I, I think that my problem with it is that the dialogue at times, brilliant, really, really good, can deviate into um, tropes of plays. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Particularly the ending when they get into the cosmos stuff. Oh, yeah. So I had some serious problems with this ending, but yeah. we go on to the next scene. Yeah. So this is this is the horrendous job application that poor old David has to go through. This one I really enjoyed actually. <laughs> this is where it did become comedic for me, yeah. while also being uh, very very personal because I felt the the throngs of having to talk to someone who, again, being Ireland, a small country, but also a small country with corporate entities and you know vastly building itself up as a you know production house country and also a place of great software and things like that. I've been in positions where you are being interviewed by someone who gets to play with knowing who you are and your personal background while also telling you that this is officious. This is about, you know, you have to mm-hmm. fill out the form and this is, are you qualified and not qualified? And that schizophrenia of jumping between both to play with who you are and knowing that they are ultimately, they have power over you. They know they have power. They're playing with that power, but they're also getting to use language and diplomacy and tricks to act as if they're equal with you or that they're not you know, ultimately invading their power over you. And, and that's something that, that's a kind of schizophrenia I've dealt with a lot, I feel, in not just office life, but, mm-hmm. you know, any kind of large business. And I think you've probably dealt with the same. Absolutely. I think it's the scourge of, of uh, modern offices. And it's, it's interesting that they raise it because um, I think it's the only defense of the bureaucracy. The only, the only reasonable phenomenological defense of the bureaucracy. When I say the bureaucracy, I don't just mean... I don't mean paperwork, I mean the way in which we relate in artificial stereotyped ways and in systems. our daily lives and through yeah. systems yeah. that are forced upon us. And it, that is so destructive. And But the only real defense for that is that it, it, it insulates you to some extent from being exploited by soft power dynamics, mm-hmm. whether that be through um, uh, t- sort of tangential sexual harassment or whether it be through uh, networks of friends that, that take over the power of institutions or, or any other number of other things. And ideally, the bureaucracy through enshrining standards and practices and so on protects you from that. But as we see here, it doesn't always succeed because one of the things that, as you just articulated so, so excellently, people can do in positions of power is to sway between informal and formal contexts, to code switch in a way that endangers the person they're with. And we see in this monstrous character of Val, David's yeah. ex-girlfriend and wannabe boss, 
this, this exact <laughs> behavior. It is very Bardsian, actually, because you mentioned codes, and it is two codes of language. It's being able to subtly inculcate the code of, no, this is a contract, and I am your boss, and I'm doing you a favor, which is I'm coming from a position of larger... Uh, I'm coming from a position of a larger commodity and I, I'm a benefactor. To then switching back to the code of, you know, you used to play together and how are things with your life? Very personal equality, but like being on an equal level based or, or in language. this case, did you dump me because I was Christian? It was Christian, exactly. <laughs> Which is interesting as well because the, the, it's almost to be asymmetric. She's putting herself back in the weakened position of why did you dump me? But but at the same time, she's not. She's She's got the tone, I'm sure, in the play. You've noticed this when you saw it and heard it, is that the, the tone comes across as if I'm still in power, but now you have to give me some real mm-hmm. confessional, but not too real. <laughs> that it that it in any way makes me feel implicated or affects the job. And, and this is one of the there were some terrific performances in that production, and the performance of of Val, this kind of uh, succubian boss, was was really really um, brilliantly done. And the the, the 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 subtle switches in tone between flirtatious, confident businesswoman and venomous um, creature of, of yeah. myth um, were, 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 were really well <laughs> it's done. exactly how I read it. And it's interesting that the dialogue is so good here. Even if it, you know, sometimes is a bit arch. It's so good here that I can I could hear that. Mm-hmm. I could hear how brilliantly her, and I could feel, I could feel the presence in her tone. Possibly even, I imagined her sitting back briefly, kind of going back to casual with the arm back, saying, so how are things that's, with Jess? That's literally... Uh, yeah. And then sitting forward a little bit again, saying, but this is serious. <laughs> that's literally yeah. how it was played. I mean, there, was a, there was a moment where she kind of sits back with, with her legs arm, folded yeah, and across back, her desk. Yeah, like this. And yeah. then she stands up and... Yeah, it's, it's exactly like that. That's, that's, uh, that's, a, that's psychic of you. <laughs> well, I need some bit of credit on this show. After you got to say sublimate, I'm so angry. <laughs> I love that word. Um, yeah, so, so Val is, is getting vengeance on, on David for dumping her in college, but it's so much more than, than it could be in, in that simple way and she has this weird lackey Deb who, who exists only to make David uncomfortable yeah. as uh, she reveals this humiliation and then the scene turn, takes a very dark turn when uh, she, David, David's like you know I need money and she's like well you know you could always blow men for money yes or which perhaps your, your wife strange. Exactly. she could go and blow men for money yeah which seems like um, a total non sequitur yeah which is a non sequitur, but then she she gives it some level of sequitur. She gives it some level of explanation, where she can't she contextualizes it as this very old, nameless, anonymous business guru set of quotes we all live. These stupid paradigms operated under these rules in business, such as well, there's the hard way where you do the real work, or there's the easy way you give a man a blowjob, and it's it's that disgusting logic that tends yeah. to operate a lot and within business business acumen. And when I saw the play, and when I read it this time again I sort of took this at face value that that this is kind of shocking and gauche and stuff but actually what's revealed in the next scene is that she's actually referen- referenced the, referencing the fact that she knows that David has actually, actually done, done this that, yeah. <laughs> so this this kind of mild mannered teacher who's looking for a sales job to cover his wife's debts that we'll get into in a moment actually has uh, apparently uh, been been off blowing people for money. Yeah, and that's his dark secret. Although you know it's sort of crowbarred in, and nothing else he says has any kind of yeah, reflection it's very stra- on it. It's a very strange thing. The, the only other time you even hear reference to it is when the strange Duncan kind of fat business tycoon type, you know, clearly burnt out all his money in upper limiting psychology sales, but keeps acting as a businessman mentions to Debbie in a bar well, so this, we're, yeah. we're, we're, we're cutting in so that's, but it comes that's in as a, a picture that's in two scenes so yeah. we'll, we'll but that's the only other time it's mentioned then isn't it yeah but it is directly mentioned that it's a, anyway we're, yeah. we're, it's it's too confusing for the poor listener if we do that because that's true they yes. probably haven't read this open loops. rather obscure play I don't want to open any more loops so so that scene ends with David sort of submitting and, and being and Val saying I'll take care of you you come work for me for no money at all but don't worry I'll take care of you you know and I'll lick your mole she, this is creepish scene where she she pulls his sleeve back yeah. And licks, licks his, his mole. mole. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
and then how that play yeah anyway connects <laughs> connects the mold it's a cliff it's a key into the plot of intimacy that isn't real and where it is real then uh, let's move on so that, that's that's been the first three scenes of opening scene we got uh, we got this guy who's killed his wife we're moving back through time uh, second scene the parents of the dead wife third scene wife is still alive but not on stage he's looking for money he needs money because they have debts yeah. and now finally in scene four we meet Jess Yes, so his wife kind of finally comes into play uh, and she is speaking, I'm not quite sure to who we can maybe assume to David or to some, what did you, who was she speaking to when she was on stage, to nobody and just having a voice play out? Or? Yeah, it was, so actually this is staged in kind of an interesting way. So there's two, there's two narratives. I, actually, I want, I want you to tell me, this scene has the wife's narrative, but there's also another narrative going on. There's numbers one, two, three, four, and five, and I imagine them all to be the, basically the same actors in the play coming out and then pretending to be those one, two, three, four, five characters, even though they're the same person. We can imagine it to be the logic of David as it informs and justifies and starts to uh, starts to get ready, prepare this new logic, this new code system for entering business and understanding pathetic things it's going to have to do. I imagine that all the actors came out and played that those one two three four four five points but they're meant to be david i think in some way is that what happened well so that would be that would be a, a, a an obvious way to do it but actually what happened which is something really strange that i haven't seen before so when you learn playwriting you're generally told keep the cast small because plays need to tour plays won't be staged if they're large cast but actually in amateur dramatics that's the exact opposite of the truth um theaters want to fill seats and actors have friends and families that will bring especially amateur actors that will that they'll yeah. bring to the audience so they, they the more people in a play the better in the amateur dramatic world which is you know kind of uh, contradictory to what you would uh, imagine so this scene had a bunch of new actors representing these fragmentary ah. narratives all dressed uh, identically as a sort of business Very good. Uh, woman and, uh, and, yeah. and, and, and arguing with each other so these two narratives one is Jess articulating her existential anxiety Jess being David's wife who's, who's alive again as we're moving back through time and then the other one being about this evil financial instrument that's invented yeah, as it comes up. Uh, and it, the one, two, three, four, five numbers are inventing and also discussing with themselves as they try and rectify some of the morality of it and try and justify where they're coming from. Kind of explaining the base logic of we need to make money, we work for a loaning company, but why don't we start giving out loans to this giant, but if still a little bit niche market of people who are essentially not ready for credit or basically credit denied because their conditions are, and the, the risk is too high. They're actually they're actuarially too massive a risk to ever give loans to, but if we put the profits we can make off them in massive interest against the losses of initially giving them loans, it comes back multiple, you know, multiples and tens. It comes out, it's a huge profit and no one's ever thought of it and we should go do it and it's those five points are essentially talking about what would be the credit crisis where, where mm. the least at least it's not entirely true actually it's the latter part of the credit crisis credit crisis is a lot more complexity other than weird banks giving out marg- giving marginal people loans it's more than just that but that was a big proportion sure. that it's was big, a big part Defa- yeah. loans defaulting because they banks knew that they would default because they could make enough on the resale of the loan and what was paid before the default that it didn't matter that but it would default exactly it didn't matter that it defaulted because you could guarantee on the property market being so huge that you could resell sell the house or think that they bought the commercial unit at a higher price anyway so it was all going to be fine you could have them default get the huge interest while they lasted and then sell on the debt to someone else uh, and this is the beginning of this idea it's being generated in five points and I wasn't quite sure and I, maybe I should have put more study into this but I wasn't quite sure if the numbers meant anything at all in terms of the language I thought at one point did one signify the beginning of the idea and five the syllogism or overall poetry of the idea or but other times five was saying what one would say anyway. So I, was, I, I didn't think it even mattered. It just, I, in the end, I thought it was a mocking of 
uh, like a bullet point business like spreadsheet or some level of yeah, I, I yeah. think they are one character really, and they could. Yeah. This could be done with two actors on stage, uh, the Jess character and one other character, or it could it could even be different aspects of the Jess character, depending because her her job is never actually mentioned. So maybe she could be both people. She mm. could be the exploited and the exploiter, or it could be David. Or but in in the staging, it was done with five other actresses um, filling up the stage, actress after actress, all dressed identically in a, in a sort of hypnotic and disturbing manner. I think that's great, though. I think I really give it an interesting twist on it because I suppose in the end you, you represent. Uh, cognitive problems you're not even cognitive bias but you're representing a split consciousness it's one that only thinks in the numerics and benefits you can get if you play the systems of value that are humans you know and their houses and commodities so the whole thing is a commodity you're, you're seeing this build-up of an idea of taking advantage of defaulters and people who are desperate to you know gain happiness monetarily or through houses and you're, you're, the logic of that is starting to build itself up while at the same time a woman jess who's real who's the wife of david is also just speaking loudly of emotions and a want to maintain some sort of real happiness or find kind of balance and the two are uh, i suppose when they're enmeshed or intermingled like this in dialogue seem to the the asymptote impossibility of them ever touching becomes more and more obvious so it, to me it was looking back on it it's, it's a kind of a cognitive bias almost, or some sort of at least cognitive um, breakdown of these two completely separate ways of thinking. I, I don't know how it was taken when you watched it, though. How did you find it? Yeah, I, I think it was... Um, I mean, it's very simple in a way. You have somebody discussing how they designed this financial instrument and mm-hmm. then coming to a realisation over the course of the scene of the of the horrors that ensued, of the, of the, um, the real lives affected by it, even as they have personal success. And then by the end of the scene, the life that they imagine being affected is the life of Jess, is the character who really exists in the play. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, it's sort of a circular thing. And at the same time, you've got Jess having this schizoid consumerist fantasy of what if I was an alcoholic? What if I was a Buddhist? Yeah. And in a sense, she is an alcoholic. She has this addiction to, to, to we find out she's an addiction to, to buying things she can't afford. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, she is a Buddhist because she's existing this circular narrative about rebirth and death through the play running backwards. And in this scene, through the characters inventing her narrative arc, even though they seem fantastical because she's a concrete person whose name we know and they're just numbers, she, in a sense, is the fantasy of the worst, uh, the guilt that they feel for what they've done. That's very interesting. I actually didn't take, I didn't take much of that at all. I did see, I did pick up on her being the outcome of their system, but I didn't, uh, <laughs> the beast, the beast. <laughs> I didn't at all think about the, the part where, what you just said there a moment ago about her being in a Buddhist cycle because she's in this irreversible cycle too. She's going backwards. And uh, I never even considered that. I thought it was just because it was meant to be some token sentiment of how a lot of kind of uh, beleaguered and, and aging housewives and people stuck in these lives of, of um, middle class boredom tend to seek out some cheap consumerist variety of, of you know wholesomeness and spirituality and often tends to be Buddhism because it's one of the easiest ones without the taking on of a larger authority. I think it's even darker than that because it's kind of implying correctly, I think, that um, the answers that we seek by very nature of the fact that they're articulable and this gets into language in the play as well are are meaningless the fact that we are reaching for them as answers to you know, to solve our problem while remaining ourselves in their context, the framing's already off. Yeah, yeah, we're already onto a loser. It's like looking for the woman who's going to make you happy. Now that I, that was very much a theme. I, I kind of became a lot stronger as the play came towards its ending, especially when you have a character declaring language is pointless at the end. And now it's a very easy thing for for a lot of plays to do. 
but there was, there was a real meaning to that and I could feel that here uh, a little bit because I, I, even though you're saying it's about Jess talking about ultimately she's being schizoid a little bit she's breaking off to these different realities of looking to escape and what at the same time confirming that she's in the circular logic and you're saying this in financial instrument is talking about the consequences of what's about to happen but also the success of exploiting you know default or marginal people um, I thought it was much more about the split of the two consciousness or consciousnesses or whatever mm-hmm. you want to say for pluralizing it these two things being so completely separated, yet at the same time, they are intertwined because this very logic will define this woman's life as much as it will define a lot of people's lives, even though it's huge. It's just an index of numbers. It's very, it even says so itself. This is just numbers on a page. And yet it's not. Here's a human result on the other side of it. Yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying is I didn't take it as, as, as intelligently as you did. I mean, that was brilliantly well, it, you insightful. Know, the more you discuss something, there's a... There's a thing in psychology called the mere exposure effect. The, yeah, more times, <laughs> the more times you meet someone, the more times you hear a song, the more you like the person or, exactly. or like the song. And I think one of the dangers of criticism is that, you, you, you know, you, you add... I mean, we could look at this scene as a commentary on, on writing and, oh, the writer is creating the characters, therefore they're exactly. all aspects of the oneself. Of each other. I mean, who, who knows if this, uh, if this, this David Kelly, is that his name? Um, no, that's the... <laughs> No, you think of anything from the main character? I, I can't remember. Killian, Killian or Killinan? I, I was about to say the yeah. name too. Who, who knows if the author maybe blank on in, intended... We have to edit in us saying the name. Any of that. No, no, we don't. <laughs> yes, we do. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It because does the matter. Point, the whole point is that the author is dead anyway. Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Our truth, our interpretation of it is just as valid and maybe better than the play. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. just kidding. Wow. No, I'm just kidding. Look, I just want to say that I did know his name. You may be, you may be blank on his name. It's, I know. Again, this is a different kind of cognitive bias where one person blanks for the other. You're I'm, I'm a walking you. emotional contagion and can I moment. say that I really liked the, the, you know, the films you'd go on to make you know so like yeah you didn't I think that, that I think this play is is sets out the blueprint for everything he would do he would make sketches of things that could be really good if they were worked on a bit more or a wow. lot more wow just drafts <laughs> badly <laughs> yeah. workshopped yeah, and brought yeah. to production interesting promising drafts so what was what was the, the what do you think about his, his two most prominent films then well I haven't seen any of his films I've seen some of Utopia the TV series you haven't seen oh okay you haven't seen Utopia I know I have. I've seen. I've seen, but it's not a film. It's like TV. Yeah, that's yeah, it's a TV series. That's yeah. true. I'm, I may miss. I think it has. It's, it's got a great, interesting tone. I saw season one, and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was uh, brilliant. It's cartoonish. The premise is ridiculous. It's well made. The tone is good. The dialogue is good. Um, it's got echoes of Kill List and, and other interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, contemporary that's British what Tom films. related it to me, a friend of ours, because of Kill List. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I don't ultimately think it. it it's kind of similar to something like Lost in the sense that it promises the revelation of great mystery mm-hmm. but you know it's not going to there's no there is no revelation there yeah I, I just don't like with Lost though I don't solely stick to that promise oh, you love Lost idea. yeah I don't solely stick to that as my invalidating your opinion on yes. everything forever oh, oh no I'm done <laughs> I love the ending too I'm off replace <laughs> oh, me oh goodness yeah shoot him no, he's, I didn't he's, actually, I didn't, he's wounded I, I, I love the ending on a very you know a fan fangasm kind of very obsessed with my own material kind of way I didn't I don't think it was I think very successful and if we're going to say on an impartial objective level if such things possible <laughs> I don't think it was very successful to perhaps transmuting or well, let's bring in point. the third so we got a third hi I'm uh, impartial Todd I'm impartial Todd <laughs> I think you're both right in different ways <laughs> thanks Todd <laughs> <laughs> bye <laughs> yeah I think Utopia if you watch season two and it's opening and how much they deviate that plot and bring it to a little bit more of an uh let's call it common ground and a bit more of a concrete idea of where they're going it gets really really good and it's a great idea too. Uh, yeah. maybe I'll give it another chance yeah very interesting stuff I, I thought I was she was plain but maybe she's got a good personality <laughs> give her another chance give her another go there is another thing at the end of this which is I've mentioned before I'm kind of symbol blind but mm-hmm. I think I picked up on all the symbols in this play 
because to be fair, they're extraordinarily heavy-handed. Yeah. So we've got this wading through blood. The person who's come up with the instrument talks about wading through it. Later on, we get more steeped in blood. We get so someone thick. literally steeped yeah. in blood in a yeah. later scene. So it's you know we've got the Audi. We've got the swimming through swimming in blood. A little Devlin Well reference there. Anyway, yeah. I was uh, also just thinking of like Macbeth. Of course, steeped in blood yes. so deep. Yeah, exactly. So there you go. Right, so we're on to... Um, well, well, do you, you know fin- Shakespeare was actually heavily influenced by 2018? I didn't know that, yeah, yeah. I was wondering about that. <laughs> Alright, so we're on to five. Um, scene if you open five. This, open this yourself because I haven't got many notes on so, it. So this is, this is another scene which uh, could be... It's quite powerful, I think, but, but is a complete non-sequitur. And unlike the earlier scene, there really is no reason for this scene to be here. This is a scene where Deb, the extraneous lackey from an earlier scene, mm-hmm. the office assistant to Valerie, the employer-to-be, um, is approached in a bar by a creepy old sex man, essentially. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, it's an interesting scene. Uh, lots of great, interesting paradynamics in it, lots of interesting sexuality. But why it's in the play, I don't know, other than to say that this is perhaps there to balance sexual harassment. We've got female on male sexual harassment earlier, so maybe the, the writer felt like he had to do the reverse just so it wouldn't be seen as uh, misogynist. Yeah, except that it goes a bit too deep into the paraphilic of this particular guy and re-explores the idea of people having these secret patterns or expressions even if they're a little bit disturbing or bisturbile bisturbile uh, I love that that's term that's a great yeah. word you don't remember that no oh, it's new to me that's Chris Morris term right there oh bisturbile bisturbile it's wonderful um, yeah it, it, so back uh, outside of hilarious obscurantist words um, I think that the importance of this particular guy and the, the character's name's Duncan he's a kind of a fat business type is kind of how he's described in so far as how he talks again staging is off and he's talking to Debbie who again is the lackey who's just this kind of mute Most I'm sure she was on stage toneless tends to be a very weak character mm-hmm. who just haps, who is at the centerfold of everyone else's confessions or problems or taking huge amounts of power and stress put, put upon her in her job and she, she describes herself a little bit that way too as she's forced into answering questions very similar to how Dave talks to Sandrine you have the same thing here but in a little bit of a reverse where this time this kind of fat business type guy who's <laughs> hugely um, kind of obsessed with two things. One, with some successful business idea that we can assume is due to pornography. And two, gaining some sort of sexual congress with a woman which he feels he hasn't gotten in a long time. And um, I imagine the scene to be bar because he's drunk and he's taking Mm -hmm. a beer, so it's bar, I'm setting this beer mat. But you have his paraphilias crawling into the scene. And and he's drunk enough that he just admits them as like just a dogged confessional honesty. Just, yep, radical honesty. I get off on certain things. I need objects from women just to be close to them. My wife hasn't touched me. She's a hag ever since our child died. Um, I think this is another example, though, of, of somebody... He, he gains power through his, his weird braggart honesty, mm-hmm. but then he destroys it through pushing it too far and becoming so honest that he diminishes himself. Just like David in the first scene. Oh, Sandrine is attracted to this, oh, my dead wife, and all the, the emotional baggage around that, and the, yeah. mythic, the mythic man who's experienced tragedy. So we've got this creep hitting on presumably a young, attractive girl, and he's being sleazy and creepy, and she is somehow overpowered and overawed by this. But then he becomes so creepy and so insanely odd by the end That's of the interesting. scene. interesting. I didn't think she was overpowered or overawed at all. I thought the whole point was that he didn't braggart. He wasn't a braggart or someone who's so gregarious that he got closer to her. The way I read it is he was never going to get closer to her and he knew that. What he was going to do was somehow get her linked into this business idea that they were sharing Mm. some interest in because of money. What connected them was possibly a desire to attain minor success in whatever this idea was. Well, the commodification of sex, sure. Yeah. But there... 
certainly in how it played out on stage, it seemed as though he could do anything he wanted. I mean, really? if you read well, what's going on, first of all, he asks her for her beer mat, then he takes a chewing gum that she's chewed. And, and then eventually her panties. And starts Lucky chewing. bastard. But, but, but exactly, he doesn't, he, he asks her for an item of her clothing and then he insists on the panties. Lucky, you're a monster. <laughs> and uh, and she, she takes them off and gives them to him. So he, he is... She, he has this immense power for some reason yeah. and he seems to be just some guy who's approached her in the bar given her his card and said you know you can make a few quid love yeah. you know, and he's hor- he, he is um, is he brummy he, he was played he was played that way well yeah. not uh, Cockney but, but he, he was um, well, Cockney you were, right, yeah you like this <laughs> and uh, yeah, take him off and <laughs> he, he is he is vicious I mean if you haven't read the play he, he his, his terminology around the people in the par he Bar. He calls them, you know, drinking vomit and you know, pus and cunts, and this is the most antagonistic it's vitriolic a, person. It's a pathetic way of staging himself as above someone while being committed to the same consumer or being committed to the same thing. He's in the same place as them having mm-hmm. drinks, and he obviously has some particular self loathing. Well, sure, but his yeah. degree of venom is, is is majestic and monstrous. He, oh wow, okay. he is a he's he's a monster. He, yeah, this is, while projecting self loathing out onto others, and yeah. staged, I'm above it. This yeah. transcendental. Fear and he keeps thing. saying to her, you know, am I disgusting? I should you should be disgusted. Look at me, a creep licking yeah. your beer mat. And, you know, oh. you know, and he is creepy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but this is a holy. This is a really strange scene. It in, is in that it's just an a non sequitur. I mean, the only reason it exists in the play, I suppose, is for him to. He shows her a photo of him. He's like, look at this photo, and it's a, it's David sucking a cock. Yeah, there's uh, a man. Sucking, so you'll know later on, so you can tell your boss. He was a teacher or something, and that's yeah, how we oh, know. Yeah, yeah. Which is again, even in the context of what's going on, why is he showing the photo? How does she remember it later on? It, it's silly. But and at the very end of the scene, he's got this kind of bit of profundity, which is the classic uh, the playwriting pseudo profundity that you you add in to make something seem more meaningful. Where he says, "I was young once." Glad it's over. It was like love. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you're saying pseudo profundity. That's an interesting way of putting it. A kind of hyphenated way of looking at something like that. But I would say um, maybe you're right because I wasn't sure how to take that line. I, I just assumed there was something wrong with me that I didn't take anything from it. I thought it was a pathetic way to suddenly uh, end the scene, curtail off or dovetail it together. Um, I also though thought it was. I was thinking for a second, is it possible that there's another there's another theme in this play, another kind of subject being dealt with, of people referring to their past where potentiality and feelings were more real and weren't as constrained by, you know, what money had to be and mm-hmm. how successful and, 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 and how reputationally built you had to be to, to get anywhere in life and how those things actually constrain you as much as you think as they liberate you. And I was wondering, was he playing a token to that? I mean, because the very taking of the gum and everything else, these paraphiliac reactions, I mean, studies of, of paraphiliacs around who obsess with objects or, or start to connect with objects through women have shown that there's a perversion that in some way relates, of course, maternally. There's a kind of return to maternal objects as much as it's a perverting look at certain things that they never could have in their childhood that they've now taken as these okay. like signified I think, I think now things. you're the one overreading now I think that's no, but I way wasn't, too I was trying my best to try and figure out what they were getting at because she has her moment as well where she has her aval right Debbie confesses this sickly treatment of a mouse in her house as well oh I mean, she's a series of confessions yeah. but again this is this is his power is so great he says yeah tell me something you've never told anybody yeah. and she immediately does and tells him a series of horrendous things that she's done these secret lives, though, that people operate within you, places you would think where there's eyes everywhere in the workplace of reputation and where they're also protected and guarded, and yet they express these tiny little fights, these little moments of resistance that are also carrying the weight of some scream from the past. In her case, it was, you know, Cox, obsession with, like, not even obsession with Cox, but just saying Cox to her clients and just fuck you. And maybe she, a hated she, penis. She drew a cock on the back of an order form, order form that was that sent to no one would ever see clients. except yeah. the clients. Yeah. yeah. 
And then the other thing as well with the, with the mouse and sending it to her boss. And we can imagine maybe sexual harassment or maybe just uh, the hate overall of being constantly uh, put down and, and submitted by men. I'm not quite sure. But that she goes to the psychopathic degree and treats it so naturally and feels almost nothing about it and then just comes out with it once this man submits himself enough as well as asking for it enough that she can offer her own peace without compromise. And then I think back to Sandrine and Dave where he offers his bit up mm-hmm. of this disgusting act that he was involved in where he essentially yeah. assisted his wife's suicide. And in a way, actually, in a way he rejects her at the end of the scene. You know, she, she confesses all this and he's kind of like, right, I'm going to chew your gum and fuck off. You know? <laughs> like, well, the panties too. Yeah, the panties. Yeah, I'll have, panties, those, have yeah. those as well. I'll work with them, but not you. But she strives for kind of intimacy with him. It's like he is this incredibly dominant, monstrous figure and she's like, ooh, I'm, you know... My interpretation was that she's she's cowed and terrified, but also excited by this. But then when she tries to connect with him through her revelation, he's like, "No, no, no fuck that! Give us your panties." You know, yeah, he's, yeah. he's he pushes Much like away. Dave and yeah, but the reverse this time. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and and I just figure again. I think it needs more justification to be in the play. It needs to Maybe. connect up better. It's an interesting scene. It was powerful to watch um, because unlike many plays you see, especially in, in amateur theatre, um, you know, they'll have a 50-year-old man played by a 30-year-old and it doesn't read. You know, it just doesn't work. You need to have... And in this scene, they had a creepy-looking 60-something-year-old <laughs> man and a 20-odd pretty girl and it really did. It was intensely disturbing to mm. watch this really horrendous Desadian uh, power exchange occur uh, before you. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm looking at this as a writer and, and from it's. I mean, that's a really condescending thing to say, but I think the only way to go from here would have been to make it more abstract. Mm-hmm. I think you can't have these random scenes and then also have a narrative. You know, if this play was a series of vignettes that loosely connected and referred to each other in more tangential ways and the symbols were less were le- less tightly coupled, but it, it resonated more, I think it would be more successful because it detracts from this effort to build narrative uh, and is confusing to the audience and, and seems to be you have to couch a metaphor. I mean, you know, it has to work both on the literal level and the, the allegorical level, as I'm always saying. Otherwise, you, you just get a, a catacrisis. Yeah. Okay, very nice. <laughs> Respect to catacrisis in my use of that as well. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it does. It's a, it's a collapsing, like, broken metaphor that doesn't attach to its real metaphor. It's a piece of a greater pie that you can't see, you know, a greater image that you're missing. You're missing the signified, and there's too many signifiers, and that is a problem. There's an understanding that, therefore, it isn't in place. And the audience is going to always try and close that loop. You know, what is the understanding of this I'm trying to grasp? There must be some reason. And I suppose that is what perhaps is missing, um, and maybe missing for more of the play than it should do, because you can come away from this play and think, well, these are the obvious points it's going towards. And there's other things as well. You think, well, you know, why did the characters kind of end up this way? That there's missing pieces. I mean, is it deliberate that there's missing pieces to these people's lives as it reverses through Dave and Jess's marriage and, and the conditions they seem to have put themselves in? Or I think a lot of it is honestly, I think the play is kind of pornographic. Uh, in the sense that I think my issue with this writer's work is that he he tries for shock and he also enjoys disturbing the audience without there being a point to that. That's fine. That's all good stuff. But then use that to convey something. Whereas I think he's not. I think he's just like he's getting a thrill out of your discomfort watching this. And OK, it's sort of, oh, it's about love and money as well, because, you know, he's kind of offering her money for sex or something. I think it's as deep as that. And, well, and, and I don't know. No if, I don't know if love and money came into that scene too much, other than the, the overall again the irreconcilable. Well, forces. he keeps saying you could yeah. take it. We could take this somewhere. That you could make six hundred quid. You know. Yeah, for, because he's often it's a business yeah, proposition, yeah. but he's also going for. I suppose that he's going for sex. 
yeah. then underneath the sex itself is this deep idea of what was once love. I want to see lost. these two crazy kids work it out. I, I want to yeah. see Duncan and yeah, Deb. Yeah, get it together. Get it together. Exactly. You know. She wants her avuncular old man. <laughs> and he wants, of course, a young girl, because why wouldn't he? Who, who let him chew her gum. Yeah, and play around with his paraphilias <laughs> as she cuts up mice in the background and shows it to him in letters. I think they could be a great couple. They could. It's a she, spin-off. She's a psychopath. He's a pervert. Perfect. Don't you think it's about mini rule? I don't want to go into the Ordi Lang material, but isn't there a popular conception that, or at least not a popular, but like popular in a certain niche field of psychoanalytic <laughs> stuff? But isn't there this conception of mini revolutions that people have, which I picked up a lot in this? These mini personal revolutions are where people kick back in certain symbolic and indirect ways, much like passive aggression in a stronger artistic form, where they do disturbing things just to act out extreme rage or, or in some ways, very methodical. Um, lustful actions they can never express properly or elsewhere because of the containment of their everyday boring lives. So uh, this is kind of like a, a miniature undoing or like a ritualistic, uh, like uh, taking power away from the terrifying yeah. to unconscious. Be a, to use almost like asymmetric psychical battles, like to basically take something like a mouse and put it on a card, which is usually a token card people use to stage moments of mm. career advancement. Here's a Christmas card to my boss. But this time, but, the, but a mouse's entrails on it as a kind of fuck you. Because, oh, because what was attached to that was that the mouse is something in her house because her, or her apartment because her apartment is so shit. Mm. These are the dysentery conditions she lives in, being a barely middle management idiot, or someone at least feels they're smarter, but is treated like an idiot. And she's expressing to this greater boss, and I'm mm. sure has more mm. success, here's what my conditions of my life are. Here's what I had to suffer through one night because of you and the authority you hold over me. So it's a mini revolution she's having. You're, you're inspiring a tangent. Will, I, will you indulge me or? Go. Okay, so Louis Theroux has, is just back on television. For those of you not in the UK, Louis Theroux is a, a famous comedian commentator on, on life. He goes and interviews yeah. people. Uh, and his latest series uh, saw him, for the first two episodes, visit people who are in, uh, in an institution for the criminally insane. Two of the people he spoke to were a boy who raped his own mother. Well, I say boy, he's in his mid-twenties now. But he raped his own mother. And um, who's the other one? Uh, oh yeah, so another guy who gripped with religious fever. I think he killed someone. I think maybe it was his mother. He killed someone anyway in, in this paroxysm of religious fervor. And in both of those cases, Louis Theroux's technique is not to commentate ever. Yeah. So he has this very flat affect, this kind of jocular um, but blunted British uh, affect. And he, 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 he lets you project onto him. And I don't know whether he has the insight to realize this or not, because he seemed to be going along with the uh, medical, uh, bio, uh, psychosocial uh, interpretation of the institutions that he was visiting. But he visited the families of these people. And in the case of the guy who had had sex with his mother in this, uh, in this very edifice way literally yeah um you know kill the father no 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 the, 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 quite clearly the parents had always overindulged him ah. to, the, to the point of madness to the point where he you know, he, he had been diagnosed with uh, narcissistic personality disorder and mm. a few other things like this and it's come from families where you're told you're great all the time yeah, yeah. Uh, ordinarily i would i would i would look down those because i think those are overused criterion but in this That's guy's true, case yeah. mm-hmm. he clearly he genuinely was this uh child that had never been dethroned who who his parents because one of the things that it was a telling detail where they looked at a family uh, they looked at the family Christmas cards because mm-hmm. you mentioned Christmas cards and every year they just sent a picture of him not the family just him and they'd always try to we always tried to make things easy for him but he, it kept getting more difficult you know and then one day he raped his mum because you know why yeah. not he'd always yeah. had everything why exactly not? Yeah. But there was no insight given into that. And the other guy, you know, religious fervor, had gone mad, thought he was Jesus or whatever. And he came, of course, from a crazy evangelical family and had trained him up to be this great pastor and preacher. Mm-hmm. And they were showing a video from him. And he, oh, look, he's only 15 here and he's preaching. 
already fully mad. The stuff he's saying yeah. makes no sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally to, to any uh, objective person, clearly a mad person in the grips of a religious mania. In but, a fervor. but sitting beside his his wildly repressed uh, mother or aunt or whatever as they watch this and she's nodding and smiling. And, uh, you know, it's a beautiful commentary. Louis uh, through comments comments without ever commenting even yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, because it's, uh, often it's, it comes down to as well the, the staging that his producers mm-hmm. and writers do, which is, and there is a writing team behind it. There's a kind of a, a direction. Everyone's fictional. Yeah, exactly. There's an editorial <laughs> process they have uh, and this is an editorial process that exists in, in audiovisual journalism where if you're doing a documentary there is still, it's still kind of like an article in a, in a sense but the way in which they stage their stanzas and their pieces is such that they look back through the material and they often, even when they're making it, figure out where do we follow through on? Is this family the most interesting? Are they particularly crazy? What are the themes you can feel in this? And you just know it. There's an instinct for knowing what it is without ever saying it. It's written into the environment. It's written into their faces. So he's always been brilliant at that, just following through on the right pulses of characters and then editing at the end with some great stagers and people who know how to work it like okay here's how we comprise this piece and we'll have your voiceovers around it and it's going to be about how these people are absolutely crazy and we're going to let the audience be smart enough to conclude and mm-hmm. pull mm-hmm. away from what we're showing them and what we're imprinting onto them uh, points they can make themselves and it's yeah I really like his style but he is a bit, you said he's flat affect he's a screen he's, mm-hmm. he's the total Freudian screen he's, he knows he has known this it's a journalistic style he carried over from not to Booth but there's a lot of older journalists who came from the 50s and 60s and BBC and his family Louis through his family are tied Mm-hmm, to the mm-hmm. BBC like they they have a lot of history there so it would make sense that he's yeah. picked up that style but yeah. he's, he's, the, he's Paul through his father and yeah I think that's uh, Justin through Jennifer Niston's husband boyfriend whatever yeah yeah is his cousin. husband yeah, yeah is his cousin I heard about yeah. that yeah anyway on to this because I have to <laughs> I have to be kind of running off soon okay. enough not to okay. be unfair so we are at scene six yeah scene six is uh Chess uh, in hospital, but she's not been institutionalized in this case. This is earlier, we've back before her institutionalization. Actually, no, sorry, it's, it's still after her institutionalization. Mm-hmm. But the reason she's in hospital is because, uh, in, in an overly dramatic turn, she witnessed uh, a, a stabbing, a monstrous, uh, unprovoked attack. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. She and David try to talk about it, but he's more concerned with her out of control purchasing, uh, yeah. her, her spending money, her shopaholic problems. And his instincts to immediately pick up on her lies and her indiscretions and knowing how to sense them. And we see the history of that relationship there and his dialogue being so askew from what she's trying to emotionally express in this moment of, you know, poignantly seeing what she saw. So Jess saw a man get stabbed. She saw two men run into each other. One lost his phone under a bus because the, the other man bumped into him. And in losing his phone, which again we can see to be business life because she described him as a businessman with a phone. So we already know the phone is an extension of his business, his, his communications, the importance of his everyday life with phones are huge huge part of that today and uh, it gets knocked under a bus on Oxford Street and in his anger he stabs this other man in the heart stabs him powerfully and, and, and then she's the only person as she describes it anyway is the only person who knelt down and held him and touched him and got blood on her, her sleeves and all over her clothes because people's clothes are so nice so these nice days. these days which is so, another great yeah, laugh line it is yeah. a fantastic line although I read it as a sad line I read I mean a lot of the points where I knew they were comedy I couldn't help but just feel the tragedy incurred mm-hmm. in them because it's that balance is, the tragedy comedy is very good here comedy is always much broader when, when performed than written down yeah I think I've, that's very true and that's, how I, that's why reading it was quite strange and I, I, the whole scene is really really sad because you can see that the makeup of what was going to be the breakdown of this marriage you know the, the makeup of all of their problems and it reminded me of Gaspar, Gaspar Noé or No depending on how you want to pronounce his name his film Irreversible only because it's a very similar style not so much in I know that's a lot more of a stylized film that's shot on single camera but it's more the going backwards through his relationship to the moment of beautiful intimacy where they kind of confess to one another in a real 
intimate sense of who they want to be and how much they love each other and how much they want to move together in life. That and how the ending of the film is the start and how the starting of the film is this like horrible end and the seeds were sown of what would be too much innocence in a world that won't allow it. I know it's a simple, stupid setup, but that's actually a lot of what irreversible the film is. And that kind of begins here in this scene where she's again kind of confessing to him like, well, this is this happened. This man was full of blood, you know, and he poured out of him. It's like a child describing a balloon or an object she saw. She's describing it almost, um, well, not in an object way, but she's describing a human who's just got stabbed as if he's, what does she say about again? All the blood pours out of us. You know, yeah, so again, we get this, this blood symbolism, yeah. but in this case, it's she's afraid that the blood will pour out and uh, out of him and go back into the wrong place in him. Is, yeah. and then the doctor reveals yeah, well, the man has died and actually that's what happened yeah. the heart has a pocket and filled up with, filled blood. Up with blood so yeah. it seems comedic and, and ludicrous mm. and yet she's actually justified in, in thinking that he'll, he'll fill up with his own blood and poison himself yeah exactly which is a very strange idea of vitality your own blood filling you up and killing you and at the same time yes there was a heart valve that's just under, underneath the heart I think he describes it it got filled up and he died uh, and then Dave doesn't seem to really care. I mean, he at times expresses the emotions he's supposed, he's supposed to express, which is shock and, you know, concern for his wife. But then quickly goes back onto why were you on Oxford Street? Why were you there? And if you're coming from this street, why did you go through Oxford Street? Because it's not a, it's, it's a diversion. It's not is a, there something I'm missing there? Because I feel like there's maybe, maybe Oxford Street is in some way associated with the sex trade or something like that in a way. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of things. It's, it's cheap trading. Yeah. So a lot of market stalls, cheap shit, tap that you buy quickly and so, sex too. Yeah. So maybe he's afraid that she's on Oxford Street because that's where he sold himself for sex. Yeah, it's very good. It's possible. Uh, I, that's the only reason that I can think because this whole thing of his fixation on the spending, it seems like it's beating a dead horse. We've already established this and I don't know, it just seems... And, and the reaction he has at the end of the scene where he, he, he discovers she bought some CDs but it's not too extravagant and he, it's, sort of, it's described as he, he's about to break them, he's about to hit her, he's about to, and he doesn't do any of the things. Yeah, yeah, he's blocked on all those fronts. Ultimately, when he's in front, of, especially in a hospital in front of his wife, he can't actually express himself that way. And just like before, all that stuff is off screen whenever they do something disturbing. Mm. We, we off, it's off stage, we don't see that. So again, when he's actually seen, he can't express any of these. He's held back by the... You know, the systems that are upon him as much as the fact that he's also probably quite mad and then you have the uh, you have this idea with well, we're all mad that's the point of the play yeah it's, we're all crazy with the Oxford Street thing it's it's. I thought it was brilliant the idea that he was there you're connecting that back to the to, that's possibly where he performed his sex act but it's uh, it's a lot more about how now his financial concerns for what is this maddening possible kleptomania shopaholic wife <laughs> Right, this condition she has, his fear of that and what it will do to them financially, something he's worked so hard to keep some stability over, which is the finances to keep them happy and possibly safe mm-hmm. and provide for the children, um, have blocked him from ultimately being able to communicate with his wife in this very vulnerable and real moment. He's now not really able to engage with it. And right, kind of rightfully so. He's got this pre-configuration in his brain to keep testing his wife to make sure she's not out there lying and spending all their money because of how much value is attached to, well, money for him. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's hugely important. And, and, and yet I thought this was such a weak scene because, you know, it's a classic thing. There's no change in the characters' relationships over the course of the scene. They don't understand each other at the end or at the beginning. And they're both sort of on the same. Uh, she's, oh, why don't you care about the man at the beginning? The third man. At yeah. the end. The man. And, oh, very good. Yeah, yeah, I suppose he is the third man. Um and and he is sort of misunderstanding her and concerned about the money at the beginning and the end. And and that could be the point. There's no change here and look, there was no change between them, blah blah. But from a dramaturgic point of view again, it just it's sort of a stilted scene. Yeah. Because why why have the scene at all? And also why add in another element of ludicrous drama? A, a murdered man, she's covered in blood. I mean, it, it's dramatic enough. Enough mad things happen in this play. He kills his wife. There's a Greek man's grave is defiled, you know. <laughs> we've got it we've got a sex man in a bar. Well we, he was Greek. 
<laughs> Sorry, it's too easy. Hey. It's too easy. Um, it just, it, I don't know, I just thought this scene was weak and, and, and largely unnecessary. Uh, and it was another imprint, uh, sorry, not an imprint, it's another little uh, reaching out, an extension to the world around you to remind you that the universe as well is being impacted by this level of thinking. That a man's business was disturbed because his phone was broken and it drove him to insane rage where there's a very personal and weird psychotic bond with money, you know, being a businessman, in this case getting your day completed, you know, the jobs mm. you have to do and how underneath it still lies a very barbarous but angry human mostly muted no longer something that can express itself and his phone got destroyed he was a businessman she made sure to describe that it was written into it he lost his phone he pulls out a knife and stabs this guy generally speaking though if what's wasn't go- very good if, what's, go- was if what's going on is happening within the time period of the play and it's interesting enough to mention then it's interesting yeah, those enough to reflections show. will make out yeah uh, i just don't you shouldn't be describing a thing that happened if it's worth happening you know it, there's a reason why you have characters going to soliloquies about stuff that happened it's to describe the past or something that didn't happen or so anything that we should see we should see mm-hmm. do you know what i mean mm-hmm. and it's, it's another it's a good critique as well of the um the the elderly couple and their attack on the grave i mean i don't know how you would stage that but surely if you did you'd have something which is more dramatically appealing and it was very powerful to watch that conversation between them but there is too much of this play that is just people talking but kind of a lot of plays not to generalize it too is much a lot and of completely plays, discriminate yeah. away what you were saying but that's not that's not my that's not my problem um I think, as I said there, I was correct. If I can say I'm correct, if I can do that. He was gesturing out his point of the victims of this type of system into the real world. Well, here's a much more professionalized man or a person who's going through their everyday life who, again, has this mini-revolution, but his psychotic action has horrible consequences and kills someone mm. because you know, this officious mindset doesn't quite work. And it, it's that point being reified and pulled out again and deployed out into the other universe, saying it's not just these characters, it's all around them. I just think that's not necessary. So I'm saying what I'm giving an understanding of why I think he did it, but it's not necessary that he should should have done it. And my my overall problem is not that it, that it was even off stage. It's just that you didn't need anyone to say that at all. The world right now, as it's written into, will do enough of yeah. that for you. You don't need to have people stabbing each other while trying to get to work to make that yeah. point. Uh, yeah. I really feel like the uh, the last three scenes are an effort to finish a half written play. Yeah, I wonder about that. So can we jump on to um, so the final seven? Scene, yeah. yeah, it's difficult one um so jess again kind of talking to the audience and everybody or herself or some higher authority figure or possibly to a god in this sense um is confessing all of her burgeoning love and 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 also the ineffable ability to not what like how ineffable her love is for this man david so she must have to marry him and screw him and how amazing this is all going to be and how important it is to her but she's doing this by describing how she also just the night before had watched this television program where there was a scientist talking about the problems with the Big Bang Theory or at least what it suggests about the universe that the Big Bang Theory has all these things that happen to have helped us cohabit. And she's trying to give this greater meaning to life, saying that maybe there is an intelligent design in some way because things are just sometimes so perfect and I know it based on how I feel it and my proof is my love for this husband. It's can I say this weak sauce it's like the, it's a really it's, it's one of the weakest arguments I've yeah. ever heard for, and, and I know that's not meant to be an argument for intelligent design it's more about an argument of her character who has been an, in fairness a bit of a schizoid crazed mm-hmm. woman who probably would attach meaning to these things and stage these arguments to be so she's just full of effervescence just like maybe it is all intelligent yeah. design. my yeah. love is so extreme she's trying to be poetic I get that but also, I've heard that, that that is one of the worst arguments from incredulity I've ever heard. The whole, it has to be an intelligent designer, because look how great moments are right now. Yeah, well, it's the anthropic principle. It's, yeah. it's demonstrably false. The idea that, okay, so why does the universe exist? It's too perfect. Well, okay, hang on. 
we are looking at it from our perspective of, of it already existing. Yeah. So we have no other perspective. perspective we don't know how exactly. unlikely it is. We don't know anything like that. And we can't because if we did, we wouldn't be here. We'd be in that situation and, mm-hmm. and whatever. It's a trivial critique. Um, I wrote down here, she's having a sixth form moral crisis. <laughs> <laughs> she, yeah, she has this, Exactly, 18-year-old. Yeah, an 18-year-old. Yeah. And, uh, and I raised this with, with the director, with, with James, and, and he said, well, yeah, that's the whole point though. You know, She has a trivial... Uh, conflict because you know he didn't put it this way I'm, I'm putting in words into it but because she in a sense she has no real problems or her problems are so trivialized or her yeah. understanding is so trivialized that she has this misunderstanding but but you're still ending the play with this profound philosophizing piece even if the point is that it's a stupid piece of pseudo philosophy well that's a that's a bad end for your play right there because you're ending on a very weak note yeah unless it's it's again about the inescapable problems of everyone's codes being shitty pseudo philosophies that barely coalesce and, and I'm sure it is and, it's and, just so and, yeah, realistic and malign the, the audience because they really have to understand that the only thing that matters at the end of it is the, the you know capitalism itself which is the thing that dominates all these systems that as Duncan said himself not Duncan I can't remember one of the characters said this themselves you know we pretend like this is working but is it working it just looks like it's working mm. that whole that whole argument comes back into play well maybe what his real critique is if you want to be really cynical yeah is that actually all of the philosophizing and quandaries and worries about deeper meaning that's the bullshit part mm-hmm. and really the character who has things right is Val is the, the sexually exploitative cash obsessed former Christian boss who realizes that everybody yeah. believes in something and she's just going to make it money because money, at the end yeah. of the day sure lots of little people get squished like flies and bugs and whatever but don't be one of them. Yeah. Maybe that's the point of the play. Yep. Own it. I don't know. <laughs> that's what a lot of acumen people say. That's a lot. That's a very, um, not Richard Kino, but uh, that's the kind of stuff that comes out of what are those awful, like the secret and things like that. What underlies yeah. those business motivational philosophies really is don't be the weak idiot. Be the stronger one who can take advantage of focusing only on these particular things in life until mm-hmm. they essentially become mantras and become the the new religious figures that you obsess over the saints of your luck control yeah. and order all of it I will have an 18 inch penis I yeah, will have an 18 inch penis. penis and you will get that 18 inch <laughs> penis through much strife and pain and loss he's going to keep tugging <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, so yeah, yeah. so Je- Jess wants a life of meaning but still she wants one quote unquote a bit like it is on the telly um, yeah, 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 which is beautiful. I, I, well, not actually beautiful. I'm just saying that for <laughs> to say anything. But uh, yeah, it was okay. It was it was a nice. I like that. That was a good touch. I've, I've written in here. The play ends with a desperate stab at profundity. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm sure the playwright would defend that and saying, "Well, look, that's the whole point of this character, an empty person who's searching for something." But why articulate that again? Why that? Because it reads. Maybe it's a, maybe what it is is a sardonic commentary on people who end their plays with a, with this with a grandiose soliloquy of which is so meaningful and certainly McDonough does that where he has these uh, uh, very willfully pretentious discourses at the end of plays where people are striving towards something but it's only to point out uh, how I'm thinking of the cripple of Inishman yeah um, yeah that you know, is um, that does have like a weirdly profound kind of ending although in that case it was denouement it, yeah, yeah exactly yeah yeah it's denouement it's closing down <laughs> is. Uh, is more about the the tireless life of not not just a cripple, but the tireless life of a man on this island, so closed down by lack of economic opportunity, lack of real output of creatively, just a dead person mm-hmm. on one of these islands who've only got each other. And but we better. get the echo beforehand with his false death yeah, it, but, in the film. Yeah, but it's not just the false death. I, I thought the bigger ending of Inishman was that. Uh, yeah, it is Inishman, isn't it? It's Crippling Inishman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, the bigger problem is that, it, again, it's another person c- c- carrying a false idyllic story mm-hmm. or some variant of an idyllic story or at least got bits of idyllicness in this bullshit idea of this is what my parents did for me or this is the basis of my living. 
that once again is untrue and quickly thrown away. And in fact, what was the case is something much more harrowing and pathetic and typically human. But is this the, is this the best we can hope for for, for theatre to, to to reflect the emptiness of life and go, yeah, it's shit? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I still think that one of the greater examples of theatre that tried to give more than just leave with an elliptical or leave with a question mark was... Um, Tom Stoppard's Arcadia. Oh, I yeah. knew you were going to say yeah. that. Because it, it is designing, it, through all of this language, combining you have like codes of science and codes of new age quantum physics and, and, and the philosophies that inherently are involved in quantum physics because once you understand the emptiness and impossibility of certain things and the, the complexity all burning out, you, you can't help but be left with philosophy of existentialism and, and all these codes combining with kind of great characters, some possessive, some dominant, some just you know trying to make a mark. Um, makes a new language for itself it's kind of inventing a new way of talking and dealing with mm-hmm. ex- existential crisis of the fact that you're all going to burn out and die and there's no particular god but look <laughs> that doesn't mean that there's not a beauty to systems and, and an ability to predict where things are going to go and that doesn't mean there's also not a beauty to being able to live in a moment based on our understanding of what we can't change and i'm not saying that was particularly themes you can come away with from that play but it's de- it's designing a language of almost hope kind of i mean if i remember the ending of arcadia it was kind of hopeful yeah it was. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and there are echoes through time, if, even if they're not remembered, and all the rest. Yeah, of it. yeah. And we all connect in some way that's kind of beautiful and and, and lacrimose. And oh, yeah, thank you for giving me that sweet. note of hope at yeah. the ending there. So uh, so to the future. So uh, we're certainly not going to be doing this on a weekly basis, but I'd like to continue doing it when when we have time. Yeah, sure. Do you have a play for the next time? I will give it to you, and you'll add it in later in editing in robot voice. Yes, exactly. So next week's play My real is. Voice. Rosen Crimson Gildenstern are dead. <laughs> Flat effect man. <laughs>